Some believe that the ancient Romans had a tradition whereby they would honor their generals and their conquering victors. And the tradition went like this. The victorious general, maybe having returned from uh, a, a war, a, a, a victory in Gaul or a war against the Carthaginians, would return to the city of Rome and he would be showered with praise and accolades. And according to the tradition, the parade would be, a great parade would be given for the general. And the general would be in the front of the parade in a golden chariot. And behind him, his troops, behind him maybe one of the kings that he had conquered in a cage so that everyone could see his, his victory and see the spoils. And next to the general in the golden chariot would be a slave, whispering into the general's ear as the people praised him and showered him with accolades. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. The glory of the world passes away. The glory of the world passes away. The glory of the world passes away, or if you prefer, the glory of the world is fleeting. Now, we don't know whether that tradition is historical or not, but it clearly makes the point. Be careful. Be careful to crave the glory of the world because it is here today and gone tomorrow. The glory of the world is temporary. And so the religious leaders who Jesus is standing before, this is what they crave because they do not seek the will of God. They seek the will of themselves. Not thy will be done, but my will be done is the attitude of the religious leaders. And so they crave the glory of the world, and Jesus rebukes them for it. Last time we left off with verse 18 of chapter 7. It reads like this. Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus sought God's glory, not the glory of men. Do you remember the devil's final temptation of Jesus? The very last temptation that the devil offered to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You remember it? Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Same Greek word, doxa. As we saw last time, that we... We sing the doxology, the doxology, same word, means praise, means honor, means glory, means prestige. Verse 9, and he said to him, the devil said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What was the devil offering Jesus? He was offering him the praise of men, right? The glories of the kingdoms. He's not offering him the praise of the giraffe. He's not offering him the praise of the bear. He's offering him the praise of men. This reveals so much. The devil wields the praise of men. It's one of his tools in the domain of darkness. The devil wields the glory, the honor, the praise of men because the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of humanity, it's sad to say, but it's true, are locked in the devil's domain of darkness. 
That's the praise that the devil was offering Jesus. And of course, Jesus declines it because he's not interested in the praise of men. He's interested in the praise of the Father, unlike the religious leaders. The praise, giving glory to God and the glory of God is true glory. Jesus pursued the Father's glory by seeking praise for the Father and by seeking praise from the Father. Right? When we're living according to the ways of the world, we want people to say, wow, I want that praise. Give me that praise. That's how we think according to the ways of the world. I mean, that's, that, 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 that's what our culture sells us. Just think of, of, of Hollywood. Just think of professional athletics. It's all about... Sorry. It's all about me. It's all about my praise. On a much smaller scale, this is how the religious leaders were thinking. They wanted the people of Israel to praise them. Don't you know how pious I am? Don't you know how religiously, how religious I am? Don't you know how much I know about the Mosaic Law? This is the attitude of the religious leaders. Jesus pursued the, the Father's glory by seeking praise for the Father and praise from the Father. We see this in Jesus' words the night before he is to be crucified in John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he, Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. That's a third, that's a third person way of referring to himself. That's a title for himself, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. This is Jesus' words at the Last Supper or later in the Last Supper, John 17, 1, in his prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Later in the prayer in chapter 17, Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God is all about glory. Jesus is all about glory. Jesus' glory, the Son's glory, is linked to the Father's glory, they're interconnected. They're intertwined. By seeking the Father's glory, Jesus was seeking his own glory. There is such unity in the Godhead that when the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. Same thing for the Holy Spirit. It's just the focus here is the Son, not the Holy Spirit. The way Jesus would ultimately glorify the Father and himself was through the shame and the suffering of the cross by bearing the sins of the world on the cross of Calvary. This is the great wonder of God. The great paradox of God. You are a fool if you are bored with God. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to be honest. You are a fool if you are bored with God. The great wonder of God, the great paradox of God. You know what? Paradox is an apparent contradiction. It's not a real contradiction. It's something that seems to be a contradiction, but it's really not. The paradox of God is that God would humble himself by becoming a man to bear the judgment and the shame of the world, to bear the sins of the world, and through that indignity, 
his name would be glorified. Through that indignity, his name would be praised forever and ever. God's name is forever famous through the infamy of the cross. God's name is forever honored through the humiliation of the cross. Do you understand how humiliating death on a cross was? We've studied it before. They stripped the prisoner naked. I so appreciate the artist's rendition of drawing a loincloth on my Lord, but that's not how the Romans crucified a man. They stripped the prisoner naked after they had brutalized him and, and removed the flesh from his back and from his legs and from his buttocks. With whips, this is your God. In the flesh. And then they nailed him to a tree as an act of total humiliation so that the whole crowd could see. And then they left him there. That's what they would do to a man who was crucified. A most brutal humiliating way to die. The Father selected crucifixion as the method of death for Christ. Not because those physical brutalities gave you salvation. They don't. But because those physical brutalities give you a tiny glimpse, a tiny itty-bitty glimpse of the horrors of sin, of the horrors of paying of the sins of the world, for the sins of the world. That's the indignity, the humiliation through which the Father's name will be glorified forever. God's name is forever glorified through the inglorious nature of the cross. This is the paradox of God, the wonder of God. The Apostle Paul says it so profoundly in Philippians 2. Please turn to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul provides us a lesson on humility. And he uses Jesus as the example par excellence. The supreme example of humility. Philippians 2, verse 5. It reads like this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That's doulos in the Greek, taking the form of a slave. That's what doulos means. We kind of pretty it up because that word slave kind of makes us feel cringy. That's what doulos means, slave. Taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Crucifixion. That horrible, humiliating way to die reserved for the worst of criminals in the Roman judicial system. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow even the mockers, right? I mean, the culture mocks Jesus today. Not forever. Not forever. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the doxa, to the glory of God the Father, 
history is marching inescapably to the event where the Father will receive absolute, complete glory, even from his enemies. Everyone will acknowledge the Father's glory. Everyone. And what will bring about this inescapable historical event that is yet to come is the sacrifice of God the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Jesus sought God's glory. This is why Jesus, remember this is the phrase, my hour's not yet come, my time's not yet come, which we've studied earlier in John chapter 7. My hour, my time, it's ultimately referring to the crucifixion. That's the core of what brings glory to God. Jesus' sacrificial salvific work, work of salvation on the cross. Jesus sought God's glory instead of the glory of the fallen world. And his point in John chapter 7, verse 18, if you'll turn back there now, his point in John chapter 7, verse 18, is to the religious leaders who don't believe him. His point is, I'm seeking the Father's glory, not my own. This is why you should believe me. That's why he uses the the words true and no unrighteousness. My message is true and it's righteous. The reason you should believe me is I'm not like every other Joe who seeks his own glory, who seeks self-aggrandizement. I'm here to seek not my praise, but the praise of the Father, which gives me credibility. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 18. Keep reading in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Remember from chapter 5 that they wanted to kill Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath and because he equated equated himself with God, with the Father. He claimed equality with God. And they asserted that that was a violation of the law. Two violations. Sabbath violation and blasphemy because they didn't believe his claim to be God. So they want to kill him because both of those offenses in the law, if the offense really occurred, which they didn't in this case, but if they had occurred, they would be capital offenses. In verse 19, Jesus is saying, you claim to be the righteous protectors of the Mosaic law. That's what you claim. Yet you violate the law. I mean, you violate the sixth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. You want to murder me. And yet you claim to be the righteous protectors of the law. Your unbelief has blinded you. In your unbelief you wrongly judge me a law violator. When in fact it's you. I mean, this is one of the most effective arguments that a lawyer can make. When the lawyer's down at the courthouse arguing a case before the judge and the opposing counsel brings out some case from some court from five years earlier. He says, Judge, here's why I win, because the court five years ago said this. One of the most effective things the other lawyer can do and say is say, wait a second, Judge. Look at page five of that opinion. And on page five of that opinion, it says that that guy loses... One of the most effective things that a lawyer can do is use the very authority, the very precedent that the other side is using and flip it around and use it against them. That's what Jesus is doing here. 
You're so proud of the Mosaic Law, religious leaders. You're accusing me of being a law violator. But you're violating the Sixth Commandment. They're gonna, he's going to point out another commandment that they violate in a moment. You're violating the Sixth Commandment because you're trying to, you want to murder me. You want to kill me. You're not a protector of the law. You're a violator of the law. Yet you've got it all reversed because of your unbelief. Keep reading in verse 20. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? This is what we might call in modern lingo gaslighting. You know what gaslighting is? It's psychological manipulation. It's psychological manipulation to try and get the other person that you're trying to gaslight to question their sense of reality, to question their understanding of their own thoughts. That phrase gaslighting comes from a movie from the 1940s called Gaslight, where a husband was, was trying to get his wife to think that she was insane, and so he's, he's doing all kinds of things to, to get her to question reality, including the fact that the gaslight was dimming. They're trying to gaslight God, which of course is absurd. They're trying to deceive Jesus. In verse 20, the religious leaders are violating now another one of the commandments. You know which one it is? Thou shalt not lie. Commandment number 9, Exodus 20, verse 16. What are you talking about? We want to kill you, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 no. It's all good. We love you. You're our favorite. What are you talking about? Who wants to kill you? And we know that they've been plotting this for the better part of 12 months. Since Genesis, not Genesis, since John chapter 5, beyond lying and beyond murder, or their murderous appetite, beyond those two violations of the law, they're even accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. I mean, I'm not sure you get stronger unbelief than this. To accuse God in the flesh of being controlled by demonic forces, by demonic powers in their unbelief they deceive themselves and now they try and deceive the one who is exposing their unbelief exposing their hypocrisy keep reading in verse 21 Jesus answered them I did one deed and you all marvel the one deed that Jesus is talking about is from John chapter 5 last time he was in Jerusalem remember when he healed the paralytic who had been paralyzed for almost 40 years. That was a year earlier. They're still marveling over that, but not in a good way. The Greek word for marvel is the Greek word thaumatso, which means to be astonished or to be disturbed. They're marveling not because they're praising God for this amazing miracle. This poor guy, he was paralyzed for almost 40 years, and now he can walk. Praise God for that. That's not the marvel that's going on here by the religious leaders. The marvel that's going on here is they're disturbed. They're disturbed that he is disrupting their power. They're disturbed that he's disrupting the power structure, the political and the religious order of things. These guys are at the top of that. I mean, they're the religious leaders. This is a, this is a nation that is, that is 
governed by the Sanhedrin. It's a religious body. And so they have a political order of things, which is also a religious and societal order of things. They're at the top of it, and Jesus has exposed them as the posers that they are, that they don't really care about the people. They don't care about this man who's been, who's been healed from this paralysis. They care about their interpretation of law, which really, they care about themselves. They care about their power structure because if they're exposed as being fakers, as having created interpretations of the law that are not consistent with the law, then the people are going to say, you're not a good leader. We need a new leader. Get him off the, off the governing body, off the Sanhedrin. Get a new one up there. We need a new high priest. That's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about losing their position of power over the people this is the marvel. And so, so when, you, when you see marvel there, really think of this disturbance. Because, as I say, the Greek word can mean astonishment or being disturbed. Jesus created a controversy a year earlier when he was in Jerusalem and healed the paralytic. And that controversy has been stewing. He's been, he's been gone. He's been in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Now he's returned to Jerusalem in chapter 7, and the controversy that he created a year earlier in chapter 5 still exists because Jesus is in total control. Total control. Don't think of Jesus as this helpless guy who's just kind of led along by the events of, of Canaan and the, and, the, and the Pharisees that just kind of lead him along. No, Jesus is in complete control. He created the controversy a year ago. Because he wanted to expose their hypocrisy, expose their unbelief. The controversy has been stewing for a year while he's been gone, and he returns, and sure enough, the controversy's still there because he's going to expose them a little more. That's what's happening in these events. Keep reading in verse 22. For this reason, Jesus says, for this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Here's what's going on. Jesus loves the crowd even though they want to kill him. So in love, he corrects the crowd. Correction is an act of love. Right? Somebody says, you said that and I didn't like that. Well, but what if it was true that I, what I said? I mean, assuming, assuming you didn't say it as, as you know, a jerk for Jesus. We're not called to be jerks for Jesus and, and, and be rude and crude. We're called to speak the truth in love, but we're called to speak it. And just because someone's offended at the truth doesn't make the truth non-truth. The truth is the truth, regardless of how it is received. Jesus is correcting them, knowing that they will continue, not all of them, but they will continue a, a, a significant portion to hate him and to seek to kill him. He still loves them, and so he corrects them, and he teaches them in these verses something that's very important. In love, he corrects them, and he uses the Mosaic law, the very law that they're hanging their hat on, he uses that to correct them. The Greek word here for man is anthropos. And anthropos, you know, anthropology, study of man, 
Anthropos can be man, can mean man, or it can mean human being. What's happening is Jesus is referring to two rituals. Two rituals in the Mosaic Law. One is circumcision, and the other is Sabbath observance. And in circumcision, the Mosaic Law, Genesis 17, verse 12, well, the Mosaic Law, which Moses, which God gave through Moses, required circumcision on the eighth day. But circumcision on the eighth day wasn't first given in the law. It was given back in the time of Abraham, 500 years before the law, 500 years before Moses. Abraham lives around 2000-ish B.C. Moses is around 1500-ish B.C. So circumcision is given by God to Israel 500 years before the Mosaic Law. This is why Jesus says the fathers, was given to the fathers. Do you see that there in the text? He refers to the fathers. This is kind of a, a subtle, kind of backhanded way of saying, you elevate Moses too high. You elevate Moses too high. In fact, circumcision which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, was given, excuse me, of the, of the Abrahamic Covenant. That was, circumcision was given centuries before Moses. And the instruction from God to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 12, was on the eighth day, circumcise baby, the human, the anthropos. That's ritual number one in this, in this passage. Ritual number two is Sabbath observance. No work on the Sabbath. So there's a potential issue here. Right? I mean, if the baby is born, if the baby boy is born on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and you start counting and you include that day, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, row, row, what do we do? I mean, we have a conflict. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and the act of circumcision. Doing a circumcision, that's work. We have that commandment, don't work on the Sabbath, rest on the Sabbath. But then we have another commandment that says, circumcise on the eighth day. And those two commandments are in conflict. Or are they? No. They're not in conflict the religious leaders rightly concluded that if the eighth day fell on a Saturday, fell on a Sabbath, it was okay. It wasn't a violation of the law. It wasn't a violation of the Sabbath to circumcise the little baby boy on the eighth day. And based on that, Jesus then exposes their hypocrisy. If it's okay for you to care for part of the body part of the body of the little baby boy on the Sabbath, then why is it wrong for me to care for the whole body of this paralytic man on the Sabbath? Neither was a violation of Sabbath observance. It was always permissible to care for someone's health needs on the Sabbath. Always permissible to care for someone's health needs on the Sabbath. And based on modern medicine, we are able to see today an even deeper point to Jesus' argument. The safest day to circumcise a baby is on the eighth day. Safest day from a medical standpoint. And I say that with 
great dogmatism even though I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV. I say that with dogmatism because I rely on the work of two physicians, Dr. S.I. McMillan and Dr. David Stern. Here's what these two physicians observe with respect to circumcision. They say this, when Western physicians began circumcising babies, they did it during the first few days of life while the baby was still in the hospital. Occasionally, one would bleed severely. Rarely, a boy would bleed to death. For a long time, physicians were puzzled by this serious bleeding. What's going on? Finally, in the early 1900s, scientists began to solve the chemistry of blood clotting, and they found the answer. The body needs vitamin K to make clotting proteins. Newborn babies, however, don't start making vitamin K until they are five days old. As a result, by a baby's third day, one clotting protein, prothrombin, drops to 30% of normal. In a pediatric journal, we read the greatest risk of bleeding occurs between two and seven days of life. According to a textbook, bleeding, bleeding at this time may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and cause death from shock and exsanguination, meaning bleeding to death. Soon after birth, the baby begins to produce vitamin K. By day eight, prothrombin levels jump back to, back to 110% of adult level. Thus, the safest day for circumcision is a baby's life, in a baby's life is day eight because the, the clotting protein is at 110% of what it would be as an adult. Let me keep reading. As we marvel at the wonders of modern science, remember many people view science as their God, but science points to the God who makes that which science studies. Let me keep reading. As we marvel at the, at the wonders of modern science, we can almost hear the pages of our Bibles rustling to Genesis 17, 12, where God says to Abraham, every boy must be circumcised on the eighth day. Who picked the eighth day? the most humane and safest moment in a boy's life. Modern medical textbooks sometimes suggest that the Hebrews conducted careful observations of bleeding tendencies. Yet what is the evidence? Severe bleeding occurs at most in only one out of 200 babies. Determining the safest day for circumcision would have required careful experiments observing thousands of circumcisions. Could Abraham, a primitive desert-dwelling nomad, have done that? Maybe a more reasonable explanation for the eighth-day circumcision is the Bible's statement, God spoke to Abraham. Historians believe that infant circumcision was unique to the Israelites. Thus, neither Abraham, his family, nor any of his neighbors had undergone infant circumcision. Think about that. It's not the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Amorites who are doing infant circumcision. Now, there is evidence that they did uh, adult circumcision, but infant circumcision. The Israelites are the ones who did that. And so God tells Moses, excuse me, God tells Abraham, circumcise, but do it on the eighth day. Historians believe that, let me almost finish this quote here. Historians believe that infant circumcision was unique to the Israelites. Thus, neither Abraham, his family, nor any of his neighbors had undergone infant circumcision. Who do you think is more likely to have picked the eighth day, an ancient medical genius 
or the creator of vitamin K. Close quote. This is from these physicians' book entitled None of These Diseases, the Bible, the Bible's Health Secrets for the 21st Century. So much for the idea of random evolutionary chance. Right? God is a God of extreme, absolute precision. The eighth day was the most appropriate day medically to circumcise a baby because the, pl- the, the clotting protein is the highest on that day. It was back then and it is today. The religious leaders provided for a baby's health needs on the Sabbath. And if that was okay for them to do, then there's no reason for them to be angry at Jesus, to use Jesus' language. There's no reason for them to be angry with Jesus for healing a paralytic on the Sabbath. The problem with the religious leaders is there's something deep inside of them. That's the problem. There's something deep inside of them. It's their unbelief. Their unbelief has caused them to judge wrongly. Look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's a very interesting verse for me. You see what Jesus says? He instructs us to judge. Judge with righteous judgment is what he says. This is totally countercultural. Totally countercultural today. Right? We love the phrase culturally. We love the phrase, don't judge me. Don't judge me. I mean, artists, music artists have songs. They've, they've, they've made songs and made a lot of money off songs. Don't judge me. There are TV shows called Don't Judge Me. There are t-shirts you can buy that say, Don't Judge Me. My favorite one is, My Gods Don't Judge Me. My Gods Don't Judge Me. Well, of course they don't. That's why you invented them. Because you don't want to be judged. This is a very, very common concept in our, script, in, in our, in our culture about don't judge me. And the reason it's so popular, the concept of don't judge me, is because we want to be comfortable with our sin. We want to be okay with our sin. God has made us in the image of God. Romans 1. And so we have a hardwired system that God has already put in us to seek His ways. And when we rebel against God, even the... the the most intense rebellion, there's something inside of us that is pricking us, pricking our conscience, poking our conscience. And the way you assuage that, the way you make that go away is the more people I can get to affirm my behavior, the more I feel okay, the more I feel comfortable with my messed up behavior, with my behavior that offends a holy, righteous God. Because the more people I can get to say it's okay, the less I think about the living God who in my heart of hearts is convicting me for my behavior. We've created a social order. We've created a social arrangement. You might say in Spanish, un arreglo. It's an arrangement. We got an arrangement. I don't judge you. And you don't judge me. It's a reciprocity deal. And the reason why that's important to us is because we want to feel okay with our sin. 
That's why you hear this kind of common disclaimer where someone's in a conversation and they point something out that maybe the other person shouldn't be doing and they say, but I'm not judging. But I'm not judging. Because it's this cultural idea that we shouldn't judge one another. And often people cite Jesus' own words for this idea, right? They, they cite Jesus' words, do not judge lest you be judged. In the book of Matthew, there it is. We shouldn't judge each other. Hard stop, as they say today. End of analysis. I mean, Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. So we shouldn't judge one another. I won't judge you, and you don't judge me. Of course, they're taking that statement of Jesus out of context, which we'll see in a moment. But what I want you to first observe is what's happening in a society that had as its building blocks biblical principles. The United States of America was built on biblical principles, and our society had as its building blocks biblical principles. The way you undo a great nation is not from outside forces. It's from within So you use the Bible to undo a nation that has as its building blocks biblical principles. I mean, Rome didn't fall because the Gauls were attacking Rome. Rome decayed, and that's what made Rome weak, and then the outside force came in the 5th century A.D., the Germanic tribes to destroy Rome. We're falling quickly because... Christians have become biblically illiterate, biblically ignorant. And so we allowed the devil to use the Bible to undo us, to misuse it, because we didn't understand what he was doing. And we've allowed the culture to do this. The whole thing is a fiction. It's all a fiction. This idea, I won't judge you if you judge me. Of course you're going to judge me. Of course you're going to judge me. We judge each other all the time. We're not the beasts of the field, right? We're not the hippopotamuses that aren't made in the image of God. Of course we judge each other. We're made that way as God's agents to do God's will, righteousness, holiness. And in order to do do that, we have to judge. And of course, the guy who says, you're wrong by judging me. What's he doing? He's judging you to be in the wrong for judging him. We always judge. We do it all the time. Believers and unbelievers take the social justice warriors, for example, or wokeness warriors. Well, they judge all the time, right? The LGBTQ agenda is an agenda that engages in judgment all the time, moral decisions, It's morally permissible for these sexual activities and for this sexual or this gender identity, and that is not morally permissible. That's not morally appropriate. That Christian message that sex is reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife, and a man is a man and a woman is a woman. They make a moral judgment that that is impermissible, and that these instead the the all the things that the initials stand for LGBTQ or however it works. That all those things are morally permissible. Same thing with abortion, right? The, the abortion arguments are based on moral judgments. The woman is entitled to health care. That's part of the deception. They call it health care instead of killing a baby. 
And that's a moral judgment that the advocate of abortion makes. Of course we judge. We judge all the time. The question is not, do we judge? The question is, do we judge rightly? I mean, Jesus commands in verse 24 of chapter 7 of the book of John, to judge, but to do it righteously. To do it rightly. Let's look at Jesus' words as we close this morning with respect to judgment in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, verse 1, that's the phrase that has been just tweaked just a little bit, taken out of context. Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. But we can't stop reading there. Right? I mean, that's the modus operandi of the culture. They, they, they take a snippet of the Bible and they, and they, and they wrap their presentation around that. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. No, they don't. No, they don't. For the one who has rejected God, they work for calamity for you. The, the old Hebrew word, rah, destruction, calamity. That's what the sailors used in, in the book of Jonah. This rah has come upon us because, Jonah, you're rebelling against God. All things do not work together for good for the unbeliever. You have to read the whole verse, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for, for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So we can't just take a few words out and say, oh, I love that idea. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 7. So we, we read verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged, and then verse 2, and beyond that, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We, as Christians, have been lured into a trap. The church has been drawn into a trap because we don't know our Bibles, because we don't love God enough to study the text. And so we've been drawn into a trap. We've been duped. Of course, Jesus isn't saying don't judge. I mean, later on in Matthew 7, he'll say, beware of false prophets. Well, how do you discern a false prophet from a true prophet? That guy's a false prophet. That guy's a, false, a, a true prophet. You make a judgment. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 is don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge self-righteously. Don't judge harshly. Don't judge falsely. Because the way in which you judge, that guy's a false prophet. Mm. No. You thought he was. And so you were so quick to judge him. The way in which you judge, it will be judged against you. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. So be careful. He's not saying don't judge. He's not saying jettison, throw away your moral compass so that you never judge anything as being right and wrong. He's not saying that. He's saying be cautious. Be careful. Judge in a way that is appropriate. And the only way to judge properly is to judge based on the Scripture, based on 
faith. This is a great lesson for us in the social media world that we live in. So quickly, as we close this morning, what Jesus is saying in verse 24 of John chapter 7 is, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The religious leaders judged unrighteously because of their unbelief. Their disinterest in the will of God, verse 17. They weren't interested in the will of God. That is an act of unbelief. And unbelief bows up your judgment. Unbelief perverts your judgment. Unbelief makes your judgment crooked. Everybody's going to judge. The woke warrior judges. And his sense of justice is perverted. The Christian is going to judge. Your sense of justice must be based on the will of God, which you understand through the word of God. And you understand as a product of faith. The religious leaders judged according to appearance, Jesus says. In other words, they judged by sight and not by faith. They didn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh as he claimed, and so they didn't trust him. The Lord of the Sabbath stood before them, offering them Sabbath, or the Hebrew word Shabbat. Shabbat is rest. The Lord of the Shabbat stood before them, offering them Shabbat, rest. And how did they judge him? A criminal that must be killed immediately. That must be eliminated. Get him out. We hate him. He must die. This is how their judgment was perverted because of their refusal to do the will of God and the refusal to trust in God. In fact, we hate you so much that you are possessed by a demon, we conclude, we judge. They didn't perceive Jesus as he truly was. Because Jesus didn't follow their ritualistic way of Sabbath observance. So they perceived him, they judged him, a violator of the law. They called good evil and evil good. Beware of unbelief. Beware of unbelief because it is deceptive and destructive to your soul. If there's anyone here today without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. We want you to know that you are the enemy of God, subject to his fierce wrath, though God loves you. He loves you despite you being his enemy. This is the great wonder of God, that he loves his enemies and that he provides a way out of destruction. You are speeding quickly on the death train and your only way out of destruction is through Christ. Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the one who died for your sins and he is the access to the Father. If you refuse to believe in him, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. I don't say that to offend you. I say that because I love you. And I say that because I have a, me a message from my master, and it is a message of mercy. He loves you. He loves you. Enough to not leave you as you are, a sinner by nature, as we all are. We're all the enemies of God before we come to him. And in his great Mercy. He gives us a way out through Christ. All you have to do is trust in Christ. You say, that's too easy. Well, you're right. I wouldn't have made it that easy, but I'm not God. God made it easy for you because he loves you. Incredibly difficult. Painful for Christ. He gave it all for you. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit about it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for Christ. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you have recorded these things for us. We ask that you help us understand them, help us meditate on them. And we also pray for our country. We ask that you would draw us back to you, give us a revival, restrain the wicked, restrain our leaders who are, who are wicked and, and promote our leaders who are godly. Give us a revival that we would pursue you in your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name.